Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Today we uh, set out together on a journey. And every year I like to take us through a book of the Bible over a longer series and really try to help you understand the book better. And in years past, we've gone through quite a few of the books of the Bible, the book of Acts, We called that one The Adventures of Paul. Some of you might remember that. We went through the four Gospels, and we entitled that series Living the Life, and we really went through the life of Jesus. We've done Romans. We called it When in Romans. We've done James. We called it The Heat is On. And we did uh, 1 Corinthians, Love and Order. And today we're going to start a series in the book of, of Hebrews. You've all received, I hope, a booklet that we've printed out to help you during this series, and it has a reading plan for the entire book of Hebrews that is so easy, anybody can accomplish it. The reading plan is about one and a half to two chapters a week. You think you can handle that? You know, last week we had the Bible marathon reading, and we had so many people come out from the church here. It, it, it almost looks like it's, and it's open to the community, it's open to other pastors, it's open to other, other uh, uh, just everybody, and yet we we year after year seem to have so many from this church that um, want to be a part and, and actually lead the thing and get it to happen. And, and I want to publicly thank Pastor Bryce for leading the charge on that because what happened last week was the Word of God from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelations was read out loud at our administrative building for the city, for Warren County. And um, it was declared on government property, the Word of God, the whole book, front to back. So give the Lord praise offering for that. It's awesome. And you might not think, well, what big deal? So people read the Bible out loud on public property. I, I, I want to say this. Um, when you declare the Word of God, things happen. The Word of God is powerful. It's powerful. We're going to read that particular verse in Hebrews. There are... Uh, uh, there's something just about it. And those that were apart, would you just stand so we can just thank you? If you went out to the Bible reading this last week and you read a chapter or two, would you just stand up so we can give you a, 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 an applaud? There's one up there, there, one up there, one there. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for having the faith uh, and the belief that the Word of God is effective and powerful to do what it set forth or what God spoke it to do. Um, my point is, one and a half to two chapters a week. If you can't do that, <laughs> when I pause a long time, I'm thinking about something to say, and I'm wondering if I should say it or not. <laughs> How can you call yourself a Christian if you can't read one and a half to two chapters a week of his word? I mean, how can you claim Christianity if, if you're that obtuse about his word? The booklet we passed out has some questions for you to think about as you read. It'll help you. And then each week for the next two months, it gives you a place to take notes on the sermons that I'll be preaching directly from your reading. Hebrews is not considered one of the easier books of the Bible. So I'm excited to dive into it with you. 
Uh, my heart is that we will commit together as a church to really squeeze out the truths within this book and not only take notes in our booklets during service, but that you, as a family, would talk about it, maybe have a family leave devotion time, talk about it with one another, maybe even go out for coffee or something with each other and talk about it, talk about it with your kids, your wife, your spouse, your husband. Um, just make it a part of your life for the next two months. Saturate yourself with the book of Hebrews, and we're going to come out on the other side really knowing what this book was about. I also want to say this, that this book, um, Pastor Jared knows this, I know, and maybe some of the other staff does as well, but we've been talking about doing a series on Hebrews. Um, it really was dropped into my heart last year, and um, I've been wanting to do this. We've been kind of putting it together. I don't know how many times I, I read Hebrews. Even when I was out at the Bible reading, I reached in the bucket, pulled out a card, and it was Hebrews. So I read most of the book out there. Uh, it's just amazing how Hebrews is just, it, it's, I, it's just on my spirit. It's just on me. This impression, this unction to go through this book. And uh, as I was studying, I'm, I'm just thinking about where we're at in the world today, where we're at in our country, what's going on, even politically and, and, and socially and culturally within our nation. And there isn't a better book for us than right now. So it's like God's timing is so perfect, isn't it? And uh, he's just put this thing together, and I'm so thankful for that. His word is so powerful. I don't think we could ever get to the end of all the truths packed into even just this book. But let's dive in together and get as much as we can. Are, are you with me in this Hebrews adventure? For real? I mean, this is two months. Are you ready to commit? All right, let's dive in together. I'm calling you, church, to get in the Word, to get into Hebrews. We're going to dissect it a little bit and, and, and really uh, uh, just, again, squeeze the truths out. First of all, and today's kind of an intro to the book. So I, we're not even going to get necessarily into the book today, but I want to give you an intro because it gives us a lot of insight. No one really knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. That, that's an interesting truth. Some think that Paul wrote it, but this is unlikely as Paul and other letters usually quoted from the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews seems to prefer quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so you're going, blah, 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 what does that mean? It doesn't really matter. We don't think Paul wrote it, okay? <laughs> Some think that uh, Silas, Barnabas, maybe Luke, or Priscilla possibly wrote Hebrews. Martin Luther suggests that Apollos wrote it. But there is still no better conclusion than that drawn by Origen near A.D. 200 when he wrote this. As to who actually wrote the epistle, God only knows. Attempts to give the author a name are fruitless. We just don't know. And anybody that says they do, they, they really don't. There's not enough evidence to say this guy wrote it or this guy wrote it or this gal even wrote it. We do know that Hebrews was, was uh, written sometime between 50 and 70 AD, most probable between 67 and 69 AD or AD 67, 69. When you use AD, it's got to be beforehand. But no one knows for sure. And just as a reminder for, for you, BC stands for before Christ, not before common time, or sometimes you'll see BCE, before common era. Young people, when they use BCE, before common era, or CE, common era, in your classrooms, it's just because the powers that be don't want to acknowledge that our entire calendar system is based off the life of Christ. It's okay to politely inform your class and correct your teacher. I'm giving you permission. 
because it really ticks me off when they've changed this after centuries and centuries, they've changed it before Common Era. Do you know what before Common Era is? Anything after the birth of Jesus. But they don't want to say Christ. They don't want to say before Christ. They don't want to say that. Ridiculous. A.D. is an abbreviation of the Latin term Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord or in the year that Jesus was born. So Hebrews was written 50 to 70 years after Jesus was born. And this is really important because it speaks to the purpose of the book. It also gives us insight into what was going on in the minds of those that the book was addressed to. Can you probably imagine that, that if you read a newspaper from 1950, it might be a good idea to kind of know the world events that were happening in 1950 that you'd get a better understanding what the writer in the newspaper, the article, was about. And so to look culturally what happened, what's happening in A.D. Uh, 50 to 70 or even A.D. 69 to, or 67 to 69 is really important. Sometime within that 20-year time period, Hebrews was written, and this was the time of the Roman Emperor Claudius. And then his adopted son Nero took over in A.D. 54. He was only 17 when he became the emperor and only ruled until he was 31 when he took his own life in A.D. 68. Nero was a ruthless Roman emperor who was infamously lips are sticking together, infamously, known for murdering his own mother, Agrippa the Younger. He also killed his first wife, Octavia, who happened to also be his stepsister. He allegedly killed his second wife, uh, Papia Sabina, and he also executed many, many Christians. This was a ruthless dude. Nero allegedly started a fire that burned almost three-fourths of the city of Rome. He did this for his own amusement, as well as a desire to rebuild the city with a different center. He, he didn't like the way it was laid out, so he burned it, laughed about it, sat back and watched it destroy lives, and then rebuild. That's the accusation. When people began to accuse him of this, he deflected these accusations by blaming the Christians. They started the fires. They're the problem. They're the issue. It's those Christians. Those whack jobs, right? I don't know, it may sound a little familiar, actually. Christians were rounded up and put to death in a variety of ways. Many were covered in the skins of wild animals. I mean, the bloody skins of wild animals. And then they would release the dogs on them, and they were torn to bits. This was considered entertainment for those watching. These are Christians. These are God's people that Nero did this to. Nero also nailed Christians to the cross, and he even lit them on fire and often would do this at night to light up his exquisite garden parties. He lit Christians to give him light at night so he could have a garden party. This was a ruthless dude. Nero executed the apostle Peter in AD 65. He nailed him to a cross like Jesus and Peter cried out, I, I'm not worthy to be 
to, to be put to death like my Savior, so please don't, don't put me to death in the same way. So they hung him upside down and nailed him to the cross. Actually, and I, I, I like to tell people this because sometimes you just don't know, but you know the, the, the sign for, world, or for peace, world peace? You know, the, the circle with the line and the two things down? The occult calls that the symbol of the cross of Nero. It's an upside-down cross with... Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's world peace. The Apostle Paul was also executed in A.D. 65. Nero had him beheaded. And we don't know exactly when Hebrews was written, but we can be sure that it was written to mostly Messianic Jews, Jews who had come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, as well as some Gentiles who had experienced some of this persecution, or at least had seen or heard about some of the brutal persecution that was happening throughout the Roman Empire. Not to mention that there were also Jews that were persecuting them. It wasn't just the, the, the Romans, they, they were getting it from, from all sides. And these believers in Christ, who were mostly second-generation Christians, in other words, they were either raised by those who had first decided to leave Judaism and follow Jesus, or they had been following uh, those in leadership who had come to Christ first. You, you, you probably heard this quote before, but I'm, I'm going to give it to you today, and I want you to write it down in your book. The faith of one generation is only the knowledge of the next. Grandma might have been quite the believer in your life, but that doesn't make you one. Mom and dad might be really powerful in the word and in prayer, but that doesn't mean you are. I've been here a while in this church, and Leah was up here singing, and, and, and you know, I, I was a part of, of her grandmother's funeral. I was privileged to get to do her mother's funeral. I don't want to do yours. That's three generations. Her daughter, Leah's daughter, was in our youth group and continues to be a, a part of serving in the church today. That's four generations. And now Lindsay has a daughter. That's five generations in the church. But just because Grandma Pauline loved the Lord with all of her heart doesn't give you an automatic pass. And they know that. The faith of one generation is only the knowledge of the next. What am I saying? I'm saying you must get faith for yourself. You have to do the work. Nobody can do it for you. You have to go after God. It can't be done for you. You don't get it by osmosis. You have to be the one who gets on your face and prays and seeks the Lord. You have to be the one that gets into the word of God and reads it and lets it sink into that heart to soften that old hard thing. You have to be the one. Nobody can do it for you. These were second generation Christians that the book of Hebrews was being written to, mostly second generation Christians. You know, faith is, it's refined when you go through the fire. And for many of these second generation Christians living within the Roman Empire, that refinement was just beginning to happen. Some probably hadn't experienced it yet, but all knew that it was coming. They were fearful of it. I mean, going through fire isn't exactly a walk in the park. It's not easy, it's hard. 
They heard the stories and they heard the rumors of what had happened and what was going to happen. And I'm not trying to be discouraging this morning in any way at all. But you know, if the Apostle Paul and if the Apostle Peter can be put to death for their faith, then you could be put to death for your faith. Oh, God would never do that. He's love. God's love. God would never allow that to happen. Tell it to Peter and tell it to Paul. We live in a fallen world, a world that's sinful. People have choices, and choices have consequences. And again, I'm not trying to discourage you and make you think that, well, God just doesn't have your back. He's, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. God will walk through the fire with you. And if you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember them? The guys that were thrown into the fiery furnace, they came out of that thing and they didn't even smell like smoke because the Son of God was with them. Jesus is with you through all the fire that you may be going through or that is to come. You can't wish it away. If it comes, it comes. Even so, I'm gonna serve the Lord. Fear sets in, though. And suddenly, I mean, when the fire starts, fear sets in, right? And these believers started wondering if it was worth it. Was their faith in Jesus Christ worth losing everything? They'd been persecuted under Claudius, and now being a believer was beginning to look like having a death sentence. Why is this important, and what does it have to do with us today? And I I believe it's important because there may be a refining fire coming if it's not already here. Martyrdom for Christ has increased. In fact, it is estimated that as many as 900,000 Christians were killed over the last decade. 900,000. What if being a Christian, especially a born-again, Bible-believing Christian in America, what if that puts you at risk of losing everything? Would you still walk in the way of the cross? If it comes to a place to where you must choose faith in Christ or persecution, what will you choose? Are you willing to lose everything, your material things, your home, your money, your stuff, your family, even your life? The writer of Hebrews was writing to people in that very predicament. Their faith was being uh, weakened, and they were starting to long for a more comfortable place in society. Maybe if we relax our beliefs and go back to our roots, Judaism, we would be more accepted. This Jesus thing is the source of a lot of pain and suffering for us. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating at what they must have been thinking. Maybe we should go back to the, the, the religion of our, of, our, of our fathers and our grandfathers. The religion that, that even our, our Our moms and dads walked away from. At least we could get this target off of us and we would still be serving God, right? I mean, Jews serve serve God. I'm just thinking about what was going through their heads. Put yourself in their shoes. What kinds of things would be racing through your minds? The writer of Hebrews says in 10, chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, he says this, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule 
and were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. The writer here is writing to a people that was feeling the heat of persecution. And their faith was waning. It was getting a little weak. Because when that heat comes down on you and that persecution comes on to you, it's very easy as a human, I think you can all relate, to kind of go, maybe I'm not going to step into all that God has for me. Maybe I'll just, I'll, I'll go back over here where it's a little more comfortable. I mean, they had to be thinking a bit like the Israelites after they were freed from Egypt, right? Moses delivered the Israelites, we know that. But the whole time, they kept looking back to Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had food. When we were in Egypt, we always had water. We didn't have to eat this manna stuff day after day. Why did we ever leave? I mean, is wandering in the desert better? The giants in Canaan will kill us. We're like grasshoppers to them. It would have been better if we just stayed in Egypt. Translate that to today. It would have been better if we just wouldn't have got into this whole God thing and Jesus thing because it demands so much from us, but, but it was so comfortable back here. And ever since I've accepted Christ, it just seems like it's tough, it's difficult, it's hard. Maybe I'll go back there where it's comfortable. Understand what they were saying. They were saying, these early Israelites, when they looked back to Egypt, they were saying that their bondage was better. It was more comfortable than their freedom. They were saying that the fire of destruction and hopelessness was better than the refiner's fire that builds character and leads to a life flowing with milk and honey. These Jews, centuries later, the ones that, that the, Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews was, was writing to, they were thinking the same things in their hearts. They wondered if it was really worth the tortures, the torment, and the suffering. And we're no different today, especially Christians in America. I mean, think about it. Anything that upsets our normal lives turns into a discussion about the end times and the rapture being close. How many have done that in the last couple, few months? Well, the rapture's coming. We can see it. It's getting weird out. And that might be true. I'm not, I'm not saying it. It's not. But we suffer, and the, the, apocalypse, the apocalypse takes center stage in our minds. We suffer just a little bit. Forget about the fact that much of the world has suffered in horrific ways for centuries, but if we, as American Christians, have an inconvenience of sorts, then it must really be close to Jesus' return. I don't want to make light of anyone who may be going through difficult times who, or who may be really suffering this morning. That's not my point, but generally speaking, in America, we are a pampered people, blessed beyond measure compared to the rest of the world. And I think there's a lot of things that we can get out of this book to the Hebrews. There are many parallels. And even though nobody in America is, is using Christians as tiki torches, like Nero did, 
I sense that there is a waning of faith, a desire to go back to the things we used to do before Jesus. Not to go all the way back or adopt some kind of atheistic belief, but a complacency that's setting in that makes us more comfortable. A relaxing of our values in order to fit in with those around us so we don't have to be so separated from uh, unbelievers and the life that we may have lived pre-Jesus. Comfortable complacency. After all, it's a lot easier. When you live in that place of comfortable complacency, you can avoid resistance from family. Ever been to a family rebellion? I mean reunion? <laughs> Where something comes up that, that is related to maybe your faith and it's just like the whole place blows up. There's a fight. I mean, if you live in that place of comfortable complacency, you'll avoid resistance from your friends. But here's the trade-off. That place, living that place, in that place of comfortable complacency, it guarantees you a mediocre life at best. Hear me, church. A mediocre life. Mediocre because it's impossible to make an eternal impact when you relax your faith and your values to avoid conflicts. These believers that died for the name of Christ, those like Paul and Peter and the rest of the 12 apostles, as well as the millions that have been killed throughout the centuries up until now, they understood, they understood that living for the moment or for the day will leave you spiritually bankrupt. But living to invest in eternal things, namely people as you build his kingdom, there's nothing more fulfilling than that. It makes life worth living. I remember in a, how I felt back in college, right after I'd come to Christ, I remember that, that, that gnawing in my gut, that inner voice that kept saying, will you abandon it all for Jesus? Will you, will you give it all up for Christ? Because, you know, we come to Christ and we, we, we want to serve him, right? And we, we make that decision, we say yes to him, but then he starts doing surgery on the inside of us, right? And you're like, whoa, that, you, I, you don't want me to do that no more? I mean, we come to Christ with all of our sin. He doesn't say change and clean yourself up, does he? He doesn't say, make yourself all pretty on the outside and then I'll accept you. He says, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come with all of your stuff, all of your junk, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your sin. Come to me and I'll give you rest. So we come to Jesus with all that stuff and then, and then sometimes we're a little surprised at what he starts impressing on our hearts that we need to get rid of. Like, whoa, I... I I thought this was a free gift. It was, it is, but it will cost you everything. And until you let the Holy Spirit begin to do surgery in the inside of your heart and change you from the inside out, you won't really understand that. But I remember that gnawing in my gut, that inner voice that kept saying, abandon it all for, the, for Christ. Your dreams, your plans, your reputation as one of the guys. I mean, that's what I wanted to be when I was in college just want to be one of the guys, right? I mean, let's go out and party. Let's, 
Get some booze and drink it up. See, I spent a lot of time trying to fit in and find my place and, and, and my identity with friends and even family. Was I willing, up, willing to give up that? Would I lay it all down for his name? And I remember when that moment came for me, that moment where the rubber just meets the road. You've had those moments, maybe like I have. And I, I've told this story many times, but I was a fre- in a freshman composition class And our young professor, in an effort to get us to write from our hearts and our feelings, was quoting out of the book of Zen. And and really, the book of Zen, if if you're familiar with the world religions, the New Age religion, that's basically the New Age Bible. It's not the Word of God. And what she was quoting were lies that flew in the face of biblical truth. That's the point. And as I sat there and listened, something rose up within me. It was almost like anger, but it was an emotion that was dripping with empathy. I remember listening to her words, and I knew they were false. I knew they weren't right. I knew they were flying in the face of biblical truth. And I saw the people, the 100-plus students that were in that classroom, thinking, they're sitting here listening to this garbage. And I felt angry that they were being spoken, those words, and sorry for the people that had to hear them and who may even latch on to them and believe them. I felt sorry for everyone in the class. Biblical truth was being trampled on. Would I say something or let it go in one ear and out the other? And then that Holy Spirit unction just came in and are you going to say something or What are you going to do? It, it, it overwhelmed me to the point of standing up and declaring. I just stood up in, in my, on my chair, I guess, um, which was really weird. And I think about that now and I go, why did I do that? I, I don't know. But I stood on my chair and I said, that's the, most, or that's the biggest pile of, I, I, I said, crap that I've heard. And... Um, And I'm not taking credit for that because God did something amazing in me in that moment. I did have to choose. So her reaction was, well, why don't you come to the front of the room and speak to everybody about what you believe to be the truth about life and finding fulfillment? You have to understand, I wasn't always a pastor. Being in front of people was very, very scary to me. It still is a little scary. You should be up here and look at you. It's not fun all the time. (laughs) I remember playing piano in front of people and my leg would shake so bad that it would hit the top or the underside of the keys because I was so nervous. I was nervous to speak in front of these people, but I walked on down. I found myself uh, coming to the front of the room and, and again, nearly 100 college students uh, were there, and I, I started writing the four spiritual laws, the, the Romans road, basically, on the, on the whiteboard, and just dis- basically describing how to come to Christ and how to accept Jesus, and you'll find fulfillment, and everyone's a sinner, and blah, 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 blah. I shared the gospel with the whole class. And it was the first time in my life that I didn't choose to ride the fence to stay comfortable. I'll never forget it. I got called that preacher man countless times after that, which maybe people were prophesying something into my life because I 
had no thoughts of becoming a pastor at that time. But church, there's been many times in my life since then where the opportunity has risen to plunge ahead into the unknown of following God's will and take a stand or, or make the choice to walk the fence for the sake of staying comfortable. And I regret to say that I haven't always passed all those tests. But with each new day comes new opportunities to not choose complacency over true commitment. And the author of Hebrews speaks to this very conflict that rages inside all of us. It's a book that declares there is no better way. Jesus is greater than any path you can think of. Jesus is superior. He's greater than any tradition or dead religion. He's greater than the old covenant and the priesthood and prophets that went along with it. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than any man. The new covenant, the gospel of Jesus Christ far surpasses anything this world has to offer. That's why we're entitling this whole series Greater Than. And I want us to take a stand as a church that we will plow ahead into the will of God. We will pursue him with all of our might. That we will make our relationship with him the center of our entire being. That will, uh, that will live up to that label, Christian. And as encouraging as Hebrews is to the believers who are in that place of conflict between complacency and commitment, And most of us probably think we know exactly what complacency is, right? But listen to this definition. Complacency, a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. I don't usually think of complacency that way. We think of it as just uh, being indifferent and not doing anything. That's exactly what it is. It's not doing anything. It's, it's being indifferent to things because you have a smug or uncritical satisfaction with yourself, with your achievements. In other words, I don't have to do anything because I'm pretty darn good. I don't have to go deeper because I've gone deep enough. I'm much more spiritual than my brother-in-law, than my sister, than my mom or my dad or my neighbor or my friend. I'm the most spiritual one I know. I don't have to go any deeper. That smugness, that pride, that arrogance, when we think those things, drives us to this place of complacency which is doing nothing because I don't have to. I'm good. My name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and I'm going. I'm going to heaven. Well, good for you. Who are you taking with you? Who are you taking with you? Hebrews is a book that doesn't shy away from laying down the consequences of choosing comfortability. It contains stern warnings to the Christian who grows complacent in their faith. 
We're going to talk about some of those warnings over the next several weeks as well. Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than. Jesus is superior than. You'll see it in the book of Hebrews as you read through it. And then the warning. Galatians 6, 9. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. The author of Hebrews has a similar attitude to this. Don't give up. Don't relax your faith and your val- or, or your values. Don't be like the one who always finds themselves taking three steps backward every time something difficult comes your way. Walk in faith, not by sight. And I believe a great scripture to end with today is scripture that exemplifies what the author of Hebrews is really saying throughout the whole book. Are you starting to get an understanding of the book of Hebrews a little bit? Maybe where the author's coming from. This is important as we get into it. This is important as you get into your reading this week. You gotta understand who he's talking to. But the scripture I wanna leave you with is Joshua 24, 14 through 15. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Lay down the idols. And idols aren't just those little gold things, you know, you set it in your shelf. Idols are anything that you put up in front of God. Your stuff, your family, your career. Lay down the idols and serve the Lord. Verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites and whose land you are living. But as for me, this is Joshua, and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. End of story. I love that. And I'm asking you this morning, is that your heart's cry today? In the midst of everything going on culturally around us, politically, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy what happens on a weekly basis. But are you going to stand firm? Are you going to walk through the fire? If persecution heats up, are you going to relax your beliefs so that you don't get burned? It's a big question. My job is to prepare you, to equip you, for the work of the ministry. And part of that preparation is knowing that you know 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 what you're gonna do in those moments. Let's pray. Father God, every single one of us in here this morning has had moments where we've relaxed our commitment. We've stepped back from our values just to fit in or avoid conflict. We've all been in a place where the unction of the Holy Spirit is burning inside of us and we politely tell him no. God, we repent for that right now. God, we want to be stronger than that. We know that you are greater than anything. 
and that you live on the inside of us. I have to ask this this morning. If, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's the beginning of all of this. If you're here and you want me to lead in a prayer, I will not embarrass you. I will not call you up front. But just as a confession unto God, would you just lift your hand up? Every head is bowed and eyes are closed. Would you say, yeah, that's me. I want to accept Jesus today. I need him. Is there anybody like that here today? Okay. That I'm in a room full of people that are believers. And just like the Hebrews, we live in tumultuous times. We've got to be ready for anything. Lord, we commit to you today. We give you our hearts. We give you our lives. Lead us, guide us, change us, mold us, use us. Lord, we want to be conformed into the image of your Son. We don't want to live according to the patterns of this world and shrink away every time conflict might come our way. In love, God, we want to stand for your name. And if that's your heart this morning, would you just stand and say, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you, Pastor Barry. Let's do that. Let's make that commitment. And don't stand if you don't want to. No one's going to ridicule you for that. No shame in that. Not, with, not at all. You got a reading assignment for the rest of the week? Two chapters. Real tough. Well, let's do it. Amen? Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.